This is Our Voices on the Yard. Welcome to Our Voices on the Yard, where Black artistic excellence meets everyday life. I'm your host, Denise Woods, and I'm going to take you from the Black church to the bright lights of Broadway, from tiny music studios to the mega stages of international opera houses, from rustic dance studios to ornate vaudeville theaters. Join me as we explore and celebrate the achievements of the Black artists that attended conservatories and fine arts programs around the world, starting with my very own, the Juilliard School. This is Our Voices on the Yard. Today, we have an extraordinary opera singer. Yeah, a bass, the voice of God. (laughs) His name is Kevin Thompson. He's just an amazing singer, an amazing human being, and he's funny. So this interview is going to be hilarious. We're going to talk about the good times at Juilliard. We're going to talk about some things that uh, happened after Juilliard, life after Juilliard. For some people, it's a little bit more difficult to sort of get the momentum going than others. With Kevin, it was just a bit of a grind, but he found his stride, and I'm so glad he did. I'm so glad the world sees what I saw when I first met this young man, who is now an older man. I met him in the elevator at Juilliard. I will never forget, and he opened up that voice, because if you sing and you have a bass singing voice, can you imagine what that speaking voice was? (laughs) Have a listen. Ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce to you, to our voices on the yard, Mr. Kevin Thompson, opera singer extraordinaire. Hello, hello. Listen to that voice. (laughs) Welcome. Well, thank you so much for having me. Yes, this is is an honor. This is an honor. I'm going to dive right in because we've got a lot of ground to cover. And this is is going to be extemporaneous. Ladies and gentlemen, we have not rehearsed. We have not planned. It's just pure love, love for each other, love for our time at Juilliard, and love for the art. I call theater drama, and he calls music. He's a musician. He just happens to, his voice is his instrument. And as you can hear, this instrument is stellar. So it leads me to my first question, Kevin. Mm -hmm. When did you have a sense that there would be a career as a result of this voice? The twofold question, mm-hmm. because the first part of it is, when did the voice come? When did this sound like? Right, right, right. I always, <laughs> tease, I always tease people until I came out of my mother's womb and I was like, hello, mommy. But that's not, <laughs> but that's not true. <laughs> that's not true. You know, it's interesting. Growing up, I always sing in the church and all that. So I think I sang my first solo, my mother said, at three at church. What? And then we would have fast forward. I was in, there's a few times that I feel that God revealed, not knowing that he was revealing it, but I saw it happening. So I remember singing at the Kennedy Center in an honors chorus, and there were 60 elementary students on the stage. And I was in the middle in the back and my mother would say, sitting in the back of the auditorium. And if you know, the Kennedy Center, it holds 2,300 people. She would say, I could hear you. I'm like, Ma, there is no way you could hear me with all those people on stage. And she's like, no, I really could. 
Wow. Fast forward that to high school. I listened to the tape and it's really true. You could hear me. <laughs> the voice was that strong already. But when did the voice drop to bass voice? Sixth grade and honors course, I was already singing first tenor. Then I would say that it switched to second tenor and then it became baritone by eighth grade and it was bass by ninth grade in high school. I studied with a voice teacher. I didn't know we had to take private voice. I only went to this high school because I thought that they had a great choir and I wanted to be a choir director. And I thought they have the best choir. I want to be in that choir. But I didn't realize we had to take private voice lessons. And my first voice teacher was a lady who worked at the Metropolitan Opera, who is still alive. Myra Merritt is her Ooh. name. And she was a black soprano. And but she didn't know what to do with me. She said she she would vocalize me, but she couldn't get me to sing high because my voice is just completely at the bottom had fallen out. You know, it's just like bah, this low at that point. So she switched me over to a different person who was named Michael Santana. And that's who trained me throughout the rest of my time at Suitland High School Center of the Arts outside of Washington, D.C. And he said to me, literally, within the first few lessons, I think you have the potential to be a great opera singer. And I was like, oh, what? You know, I didn't know opera. I just only knew it outside of like Looney Tunes on on Bucks Bunny or something like that. You know, that's it. And and usually uh-huh. when you hear that, it was always a woman singing. It was never a man. Yes. And I competed in my first competition and I would say in 10th grade, and this is the end of the story and we can go into further, but that's when it really became really clear for me because I won my first competition and I was not wow. expecting to win anything. Do you remember what you sang? I do. It was in the NAACP AXO competition. You know that. I did a judge. The NAACP AXO competition? Yeah. High school student? Yes. I know. Yes. That's why I knew you yes. know it. And yes. um, I sing every time I feel the spirit. I sing every time I feel the spirit in vocal contemporary. That's what I say. Kevin. And, uh, Kevin, Kevin, I'm going to just stop. I'm going to pause right here. I'm going to pause right here. Can you sing a little of it right now? <laughs> Let me figure out a key. You're, <laughs> you didn't tell me I was going to sing today. No. No, I didn't on purpose, darling. in my heart, I will pray. Every time I feel the spirit moving in my heart, I will pray. That's what I sang oh, to them, that- yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. You know, I think of Paul Robeson. I oh, think Paul Robeson immediately comes to mind. The greats, you know. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. So that was high school. You sang like that in high school. <laughs> it was a resemblance of that. But yeah, <laughs> it was probably scattered, but it was it was something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 You know. Well, did you did you come straight out of high school to Juilliard? You did? I did come straight out of high school straight. Yes. Do you know Straight. how amazing that is? Do you know how unusual that is? <laughs> yes. Yes. And what's even more unusual was it was one of the only schools I auditioned for, <laughs> which is crazy also. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I knew that my talent was my ticket to get me into college. Mm. I, I just knew that that was going to be my way. Um, what interests me in opera, I'll tell you this really quick, because this goes back to yeah. high school, was hearing Jesse Norman. So the teacher I told you about, Michael Santana, 
he used to make me go home and listen to recordings of singers. And he said, I need you to go home and listen to this and listen to that. And, you know, I didn't know what he was doing, but it's something that's very good. It's training the mind to see what it is that you like so that he can now connect the dots and now find you music and things that will bring you in. And it was Jesse yeah. Norman singing at, at Lincoln Center. She sang Monker from Samson and Delilah, where she pulls in Samson's heart. I literally heard the voice of God say to me, you will be an opera singer. And that's when I would say everything changed. I knew that at that moment, because there was no one home, and I heard very clear, you will be an opera singer. And that's how that all happened. Wow. So, yeah, that's what took me to Juilliard. Wow. What was your first year like? Because I will share that I came out of high school at 17 into Juilliard as well. And I had oh, people wow. who had master's degree. Yes, they had master's degrees in my, in my class. And I was the kid in high school that read the cliff notes. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's right. You're like, I got good I grades. You. But I didn't get good grades because I read the actual material. <laughs> I had a wonderful way of putting the dots together. Right, 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 right. So I felt extremely undereducated when I got to Juilliard and spent my entire first year in the library, in the Juilliard library, because I was like, I got to play catch up. So that was my experience. What right. was your experience Absolutely. like coming out at 18 into Juilliard? I remember being very excited. I would definitely say a little bit overwhelmed. But also, I felt very strong in myself. And I'll tell you why. It's because, and I think this is why we connected, is that I was actually the last person on the last day of auditions to sing for the vocal department. Yeah. What? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was the last person. And I remember walking in the room and they said, well, welcome, Mr. Thompson. And they said, whatever year it was, and you're the, the last person to sing for us this year. And I thought, well, uh, yeah, I thought to myself, they may have everybody that they want, but I, I had my place. <laughs> and so I, <laughs> so I sing, and you know, normally you sing two songs. I sing three songs and actually, believe it or not, I ended with every time I feel the spirit. Wow. I sing see. in French. I sing in Italian. And then they said, well, can we hear the spiritual? And I sang that and what you just heard in that key. I think sold well. There's a little bit more that goes to it. I was clapping my hands and doing a lot of stuff to bring them in, but that sold them in. So that my first year at Juilliard, wonderful. yeah, so my first year at Juilliard, I would say it was, when you talk about playing catch up, I do know exactly what you're talking about because it was just, it was the first time being completely Im immersed in one thing. You know what I mean? Like we didn't have to take math and we didn't have to take science and, you know, we had to just focus on. So yeah, it was intense. I would say in like some diction classes because, you know, it was the first time I heard about open and closed vowels. I just thought if you, yes. if you saw eh in Italian and Italian, it was eh. I didn't know it was eh, eh. I, I didn't know all this and, you know, and the French and it, it was a lot. It was, it was a little bit overwhelming, but I would say I created a system of other students to be with, to try to survive. You know what I mean? We studied yeah. together. We did what we needed to do, but definitely overwhelming. I mean, definitely. And like you said, I was taking advantage of going to performances I mean, it's crazy. I really didn't go past Lincoln Center. I just went to the Met, to City Opera, to New York Field, or Alice Tully, which is below us, or right. to Carnegie Hall. And I really hadn't experienced any other part of New York City. Like, I never went to Central Park the whole time I was at Julia. 
I, I, I get it. I totally get it. Because for you, it was, yes, yes, it was, it was seeing opera. It was seeing it. For me, it was reading plays. It was reading playwrights and works that I, I didn't even know the names of these major <laughs> writers. And, right. and so well, I pretended I did because in conversation, I go, oh, yeah, love him. Yes, know the work well. And then I like them, my butt up to that library and, and stayed there. I believe it. Yeah. Well, and what a great library. And what a great library we had, oh, Julia. What a great you know? library. Wasn't the library amazing? It is because I remember that they didn't have some things and then they would get it from somewhere else and they would have it the next day or two days later. Like, That's okay, right. Mr. Thompson, here it is. That's right. You know, and it was, I mean, because, you know, we, we didn't have the internet like we have it now where everything That's that you right. fingertips. Oh my gosh, we have the Dewey, we have the Dewey Decimal System. Like we had <laughs> that, that was the seventies. You were there in the nineties. Yeah. I was there in the seventies. Well, we had card catalog. So I remember <laughs> pulling that long thing out. That's Look right? at, yes. You know? Yes. 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 All, all at the fingers today, you know. So, and that's good and bad, as you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. What was the performance aspect like for you? Did you ever feel in any way that you were not allowed or offered a particular season or body of work because you were an African-American man? In life or at Juilliard? Oh, no, at Juilliard. We'll start there. <laughs> that's a great okay, question. Okay, at Juilliard. Wait, I, this, is, this is why I love you. <laughs> in, in life? Or at Juilliard. <laughs> no, let's start at Juilliard. Yeah, Juilliard. Well, I'll say this. In my class, the year before they had accepted 14 singers. And in my class, they had only accepted seven of us. And out of the seven, three of us were. What? Wait a minute. Wait, uh, let's go back. That that just goes over my head. There were only seven singers seven. in your class? Undergrad. The year I came in. And three of them were African-American? And out of that seven, four, I'm wrong, four. It was Noah, Larice, John, and myself, Joseph, Joseph. Yep, and myself. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, it was the four of us. It was impressive. So when you ask that question. You must have thrown down in your audition. That's all I have to say. Well, we did. You know, I think we definitely did. And the <laughs> thing that stuck out to me the most is I don't feel like they held us back because, well, they kind of couldn't because... We were the majority of the class. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, so I felt like they gave us lots of opportunities. Yeah, I feel like they did give us lots of opportunities. I would say that definitely changed once it became, you know, because you're competing as a sophomore against seniors and, you know, for certain roles. So, you know, there's also the hierarchy of we got to get this person, this role and this person right. before they get out. So, you know, there was some of that. There was definitely sure. some of that. There probably was, I will say this, and I would say maybe a little naive to it. You know what I mean? Not noticing it fully. Yes, I did. You have to, it has to be pointed out sometimes. Realize, well, I have a role, but what kind of role is it? Is it a compromario role? Is it a secondary role? Or is it a leading role? You know, and you have to think, well, because in voice is different. I mean, in singing, because there's only so many parts. You know, if they're doing an opera that features a bass baritone, which I am not, I'm a bass then I, I really shouldn't sing that part or a baritone part. I definitely can't sing. So that's right. Yeah, that's that's a little different, you know, but some of the opportunities. Yeah, I guess you could say 
they were favorites. Yeah, for sure. It's really wonderful to point out that the casting pool narrows because how many a roles are there in sides. canon for your voice for a bass, a, right. a, a bass voice at you know at at that low level? Is it basso profundo? It is basso profundo. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes, so it how is. Many characters. Okay, if you can name the top five characters in your yeah. voice, who would they be? Yeah, yeah. And have you Zara. played them? Not all of them, but I played most of them. Zarastro in <laughs> Magic Flute, Osmin in the, the Abduction of Soralio. So that's two Mozart operas. And then uh, Mephistopheles by Faust. Faust. And there's also yeah. a Mephistopheles by Boito, where it's the leading bass part. There's Boris Gudnov, which I have not done, but I have sung a lot in Russian and have something coming up shortly with three different Russian operas. And there's a lot of Verdi things. So the greatest yeah. part about like a composer like Verdi is that, you know, Aida may be the leading role of Aida, but Verdi tries to give the mezzo, the tenor, the alto or the mezzo, baritone and the bass. He tries to give everybody somewhat of an even playing field. So like in Aida, the love triangles between the three lovers, you know, the two ladies, the mezzo and the soprano and the tenor. But the father is important because he is, and that's the baritone part, because he's Aida's father. <laughs> and I'm important because I'm the high priest. And so my yeah. parts are usually considered some part of, uh, you're somebody in some kind of power. You're either the devil, you know, the villain, or you're a god, or you're, you're, you're some type of authority, a father figure. You know what I mean? So you yeah. have some type of authority. Yes. Yeah. Whether that be good authority or bad authority. This is true. It's just a sense of authority and power. I, I think I need to share with the audience your height because along with your voice comes this, this man. How tall are you, Kevin? I'm six foot five. Yes. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and I've been that way probably in grade. So I've been what? six foot five for some time. Well, see, that's what it was. You walked through the halls of Juilliard with this voice and this stature. And it, it was, who is this person? <laughs> who is this man? That's so interesting what? you say that. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. It's so interesting you say that because my first voice teacher in high school, the gentleman, he used to always say, you're slouching, you're slouching, stand tall, stand tall. And, you know, to hear this as a high school student, this is a lot. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's a lot to take in. Like, what do you mean I'm slouching? I'm, I'm just being. Why do you want me to stand so tall? You know, I have Mr. Santana to thank for all of that because he really okay. did stay on top of me. He's like, stand tall, stand in your presence. Because, you yeah. know, as a tall person, you're trying to slouch. That's what right. What you don't know is my mother's only 5'3". So, you know, you're used to slouch. I do know that. My father's 6'4", so. Wow. There you have. Yeah. Wow. Well, aside from this voice and this presence, the physical presence and the vocal presence, when you opened up your mouth, you have such an incredible sense of humor. That's what it was. You're funny. You're the funny guy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank and you, you never really Thank get, you. do you ever get to play the funny guy with a voice like that? So it's interesting you say that. It's not often that I get to play a funny guy, but like Osmin, he is, while he's a bad guy, he is comical. Gotcha. So yeah, there is some fun roles, you know, and this is the greatest part about playing Mephistopheles is that you get to be 
the whole gamut of everything. This is true. You know, you get to be I know the opera nice, well. you get to be slimy, you get to be all these things. You get to do all the senses, you know what I mean? Yeah. So you get to be playful. It, you know, I'm not a mean person, but it, it, it's nice to play a role like that because it gives you so much more. And you know, you teach acting and all these things. So one of the things is if, if a character is like, for instance, like Zoroastro or or a, a priest like Filippo or something like this, while there is authority and there is reverence in this character, or sometimes there's sadness because of like the death of a daughter or something like this in an opera, you know, there had to be good times in the midst for you to be so sad. So you have to show, you have to show all these different emotions. You know what I mean? It can't just be all I mean, I, one thing because then it just absolutely, Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, because essentially if you're playing a villain, the actual character doesn't think he's a villain. <laughs> you find the other elements of the character that are less villainous because there's so many elements in the human condition and human character. And it's up to us as storytellers to find those nuances in the character, even in the singing voice, to find those nuances that really make us human, that make those characters not archetypes, but real people with real concerns and real issues. I talk about this yes. all the time in Shakespeare. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Indeed. I do wonder when you're doing movies and things like this, how much do people always stick to exactly what's in the script and how much is, I know there can't be a whole lot of ad-libbing, but sometimes something slightly works maybe a little better for them is that fixable or is that not fixable? Oh, I let me tell you. I was taught at the Juilliard School that mm -hmm. the play is the thing. You do not change the play. You don't the change play, the right. play. You know, the, it's right. the thing. I get to Hollywood and actors typically, and even the really good actors, when they study the line of the stream of consciousness, the, the backstory of the character, they come in and say, my character would never say this. It just does not make sense. Right. And they are given the liberty to change that because the level at which I now coach, the actor, the caliber of actor that I coach, they know their craft. And, and they, right. their scripts are usually like a Bible. Well, you, and so they go through everything with a fine-tooth comb. And so when they come to you and say, this makes no sense, the writers listen. They really do. Right. Yeah. Makes sense. Because it makes sense. It's really, it's what they do. It's what we do as artists, as actors, mm -hmm. as storytellers. We look at the whole, we don't just look at the words on the page. We look behind them. We look underneath. We And we call it the subtext. It's not just the text. And once we start mulling around about the subtext and with the, with the subtext and the, the stream of consciousness, then you realize, oh, those words don't make sense. And so, yes, right. we, we do take the liberty. Right. Because that's different in our world. We are, as you talk about in the classical world, like you're stuck to what it fits in. You, you, you can't really do, you can maybe change the tempo, the inflection of it, but you can't change. It is what it is. And you got to do what is on that yeah. page. You know what I mean? Yes. 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 And I think that that's a good muscle to exercise. Absolutely. As an artist. Everything has its place. You know, correct. It makes you rise to what that is and find that reality there. That's and very true. That is very true. You've got yeah, to find true. it because you can't change it. So find yeah, it. Justify it. Find it in yourself. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You have to find it. Well, yeah. That makes yes. complete sense. 
Yes. I have a question. I mean, please think. Because Go I for think it. Grace Bumbry and Jesse Norman are my favorite ladies of opera. And I do think that Jesse Norman. That. Yeah. I think Jesse is yours too. You have met Jesse Norman, have you not? Absolutely. Okay. I need uh, you to talk about this. What was that like? Yes, yes, yes. And when I sang with Jeff, so it was actually in high school. I got yes. to sing. She honored Sidney Portier at the Kennedy Center Honors. And I was in the choir that was behind her when she sang Amazing Grace, which is his favorite song. And that was just, you know, as a person, well, I'll tell you this really quick. When I first heard Jesse the first time, and because, you know, for me, I had only been watching opera on videos. You know, I hadn't been to one. Right. I think that same year I had gone to one, but I had not been to one yet. And my first opera was actually Mephistopheles. But my first classical recital at Kennedy Center in the same hall that I sing in, when my mother says she could hear me, I saw Jesse Norman and I was sitting in the third balcony. And it was the first time that I heard this voice with the piano stick full open. And I mean, I was looking for the microphone. I was like, her voice can't possibly be this big. This is inc inc impossible. I'm looking right. everywhere for a mic and there is no mic. This is just what her voice is doing. I mean, there were moments the walls were shaking. It was just absolutely extraordinary. So, you know, it, it was an honor to be able to sing with her. I think it was maybe the next year, you know, at the Kennedy Center, but in the opera house. So it was definitely just, yeah, jaw dropping. I mean, that's all you can say is just like, wow. <laughs> and you weren't even 20. No, 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 no. And I've had the pleasure to meet Grace Bumbry. So yeah. I haven't sung Grace, but I had the pleasure to meet Miss Bumbry. But I have sung for Grace Bumbry, believe it or not. That fast forwards to the Ames Graz program in Austria, American Institution of Musical Studies. This was in 2005. I went off to, to study there and I studied with a coach that she was actually in the same program that I was in, that she worked with. And he linked us up in New York and... This is crazy. Grace Rumbry was singing on this concert. And I, I just thought, you know, I have a dear friend that said, seize the moment. And I have to remember that. And I'm glad that this, we're having this conversation because you have to seize moments in life. You know what I mean? Amen. They're not going to be there forever. And if you don't take advantage of it in that moment, it's, it's not that God doesn't have the blessing or the blessing is not going to follow you later. But there are moments that you have to step into your purpose. So seize yes, the moment. Is so to get back to Grace, we went, uh, I, she had sung and they, they were leaving and something just said, seize the moment. So I went up to Miss Bumbry and I said, hi, Miss Bumbry. My name is Kevin Thompson. I'm a bass and I go to Juilliard, blah, blah, blah. And I would love to sing for you. And she kind of, you know, you had to realize she, there was a million people and I'm sure there's a thousand people trying to ask, can they get a moment with Miss Bumbry? And she kind of shunned me off. I said, Miss Bumbry, this is really important. <laughs> <laughs> I just got my together. <laughs> and she said, okay, call me tomorrow at the Hilton. Now, you know, it's New York City. How many Hiltons in New York City are there? At so least, I literally looked at the at least six. holding her stuff. Said, exactly. I said, I said, where is Miss Bumpery staying? She just told me to call her tomorrow, but I don't know where, you know, because that's just how you did things back then. You don't say, that's look fine. at my website or do this. You, you call me. You know, yeah. so I found her and we talked on the phone and then I got to, she was recording actually with the same coach, Janice Montglass was his name. And I got to actually sing for her in the studio and it was wonderful. And she was just like, 
you should be singing everywhere. And I thought, well, thank you. Oh, it was just a great moment, you know, but I was glad that I seized the moment because who knows if I would have gotten the opportunity to do that. Oh my gosh. How utterly brilliant. Seize the moment. Seize the moment. Take yeah, the opportunity. Seize the moment. And she yeah. was so receptive that's, that's because it was genuine. Yes. Yes. I have a Grace Bumbry story. Tell me. Oh, well, it's hilarious. I am an Upper West Side of New York person. Never do I forge forward on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. I'm just not an Upper, right. I'm an Upper West Side person. Right. One particular day, I think I was at Bloomingdale's and decided to go get my nails done on the Upper East Side. And so I'm sitting there getting my nails done. And I look over and, and I realized that there was a black woman sitting next to me. And I was just so thrilled that there was another black woman on the Upper East Side sitting next to me getting her nails done. Of course you over, were. And it was Grace Bumbry. And we were sitting there in the nail salon getting our nails done. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm, I'm there. That is amazing. Isn't this amazing? I'm thinking... How am I going to say something to Grace Bunbury? And I decided to pretend that I didn't know who she was and just have a regular conversation. And it was perhaps the best thing that I could have done because we talked about everything, just as you women sitting there getting their nails Aww. done. And she was just so lovely and she wasn't grand and she was just Getting her nails done. <laughs> it was wonderful. That was, it was smart. absolutely wonderful. Because if you had gone the other way, that conversation might have been this short. Oh my God. It would have been very short. I mean, it, it was almost like it, because you see people, <laughs> you see people, I just want to come in and get my nails done. I don't want to be Grace Bumbry right now. <laughs> you yes. know, I yes. just want to get my yes. nails done. And so while we're getting yes. your nails done, let's just talk about what two women talk Life. about while they're getting their nails done. <laughs> yeah, it was it was amazing. That is amazing. It was absolutely amazing. <laughs> wow, Kevin, that is really, really great. What are you doing now? What what is life like for you now? Are you taking leaps? Are you taking leaps? Are you taking agency in your career? And and I say this because yes, I've I know that you are. I say this because I, uh, uh, full disclosure here, I know that you are taking leaps and I want you to share. You don't have to share in detail, but I want you to share, uh, you know, just inspiring information for people who feel stuck in their careers, you know, who feel almost, yes. I want to say, enslaved by managers or conditions, or agents, or stuck, just stuck, artistically or stuck. Or just the business what? in general, yes. Yes. What would you yes. say? So you're say really in a wonderful position right now. The, I feel that the gift, it is a gift that what it is that we have to offer, right? And everybody has a gift, whether that's working behind a front desk at a hotel, which I have done, or if that's, you know, working as a service person or working at wherever it is, you know? And the gift is what you have, and it is your gift to give to the people and to the gift was given to you for you to use it. It wasn't given for you just to say, oh, wow, I have this special thing, but I'm just going to keep it to myself. You know, 
And so I encourage people to fight for their dreams, you know, because a lot of people will try to talk you out of your dreams. And although the path may not look like the exact right path, you have to try, you know, and this goes back to seizing the moment. It's like, if a good idea comes to you, you have to play it out. You know, you can't just think, oh, well, you know, I'll give you a prime example. This is something not about singing, but I was singing actually in Hong Kong and I've always wanted to go to Dubai. Well, I saw that mm-hmm. I could go to Dubai and Hong Kong at the same time, meaning that I could connect to Dubai, then fly into Hong Kong. And then on my way home, instead of going straight back, stay in Dubai for a week. <laughs> and so, and it was one of the greatest times of my life just to see Dubai because, you know, I'm a, a baby born in the late 79, early, you know, late 70s. And this was all just dirt, you know? So I want to see this place that is just not sand anymore. There's now a whole city. And it was just an amazing time. And, you know, I wanted to do it with some friends and some people, but you just, you can't always depend on everyone. So I went by myself and had a grand old time. But I remember there was a moment (laughs) on the plane from Hong Kong and I was going to Dubai. I was thinking, what am I doing? I'm going to some place. I don't speak their language all by myself and I'm going to be here for a week. But it was the greatest time it was one of the greatest memories of my life. Oh. So I do encourage people to fight for their dreams, to believe in their dreams and to go after their dreams because that's our purpose. You know, we're, if, if, if we wake up another day, there is a purpose for us to be here. And it's very easy to feel like, oh, well, what am I doing? You know, if you feel stuck, try something else. You know, I'm not saying sure. quit. You got to make sure you got a, a place to go before you quit. But at least explore the options and don't allow fear to stop you from moving on. Yes. Jump. Leap. Because there's something I say to myself in this. Yeah, leap. There's something I say to myself and, uh, and I've been in a situation even when singing where, you know, I've dealt with an allergy or some mold or something and it makes me slightly hoarse. And I have to, in that moment, it's a, it's a great moment, but you have to make a decision. The decision is all faith, no fear. <laughs> you know, like you said, leap. You have to go. You have to believe that it's really now and, yeah. and not wait because, and unfortunately, you know, it's at that moment, like I have to jump off into, like I always tell a student, I'm like, you're standing on the edge, like looking at the water. I, I need you to jump in. Like you got to go. Like you, you can't half do it because then you're not going to get the full result. You That's have right. to actually do it. So, and that, and it's interesting because in a situation like, you know, acting or any of that, like if it's in the moment and you're feeling like a dry spot or something like that, you you have to do it. Or if you were walking down the street and you felt something in your shoe, you would, you would stop and take it out. You would, you would do what you needed to do to continue going. Exactly. You know what I mean? That's really, if you were running a race and you failed, you would get back up. That's right. That's right. We're using verbs. You're using a lot of verbs. Leap, jump, run, do. Yes. And, and acting, yes. acting, the, the, the vocabulary, acting is doing. We, we say, what am I doing? First Absolutely. of all, what do I want? And then what am I doing to get what I want? And so all of these wonderful techniques Absolutely. that we use in acting, that we use it as artists, they are techniques for life. They are really metaphors for how we can apply them to our everyday life. You just have to, to, to leap, to jump. Because I contend, and I know you do as well, 
that faith and fear cannot exist in the same paradigm. <sighs> That's a hard thing to realize, but it's real. It is, but it's because, real. you know, and, and I don't like to believe that all things are black and white because there is gray in between before you get to those colors. But it is true. They can't exist in the same place. Is they really all can't. Men? You can't be a little bit pregnant. <laughs> no, no. Y'all, it is no. all in. Yes. You, no, you're pregnant. True, you're pregnant. <laughs> you, that's it. You know, it's, it, it it's, it's faith. You've got, yes. you, you know, and, and, and so I say it, but it's, it's a daily, daily intentional practice. It is. To, to, to get it. To, and and right. do we ever get it? I have a little more than I had last year <laughs> and I'll have a little you more. You know what's interesting year. you say? Right. You know what's interesting though is and that it just, just comes to me very clear is it's all different tests, but they all are at requiring the same thing. It is your faith that is requiring you to get through it. They may come in a different situation in a different yeah. form, but it's always the same trick that that's always trying to stop you from, from right. holding you back to go for where you need to go for. That's right. You know, so you, and it and you ultimately about, and and it ultimately increases your faith when you get absolutely. to the other side. And so yes. I like to say, you know, I count it all joy. I count it. It's Amen. all good. It's all good. It, it really, really is. Yeah. And it for absolutely artists is. to hear that, you know, when you look back and you say, whoa, I know I can connect the dots. I realized I had to go here in order to get there so that I could really grab the brass ring. Absolutely. All, well, the thing is like hard is, is if you're looking at somebody's life of success, whether that's in politics, whether that's in anything, we, we don't see the day to day. We don't see the moment to moment. We only see the, the highs and the lows, right. you know, and sometimes you don't even see the lows. You only see the highs, you know, that's and for right. some people, you only see the lows. But, you know, so you don't get to see the journey that it takes. And I mean, something my voice teacher at Juilliard said to me, he said, it doesn't make a difference if it takes you three minutes to learn this role or if it takes you three months or six months to learn this role as long as you know the role when you arrive that's all that matters yeah. <laughs> you have to do what it takes for you to do what you need to do yes yes to, to be at yes. the place where you need to be that's right you know and that's the same thing for life and and and, and a career and any journey uh, yeah. Dear friend Audrey once told me this, and I, who went to Juilliard with, with me a year ahead of me, Audrey Dubois-Harris, she said, if you were in a car and you were driving and you got lost, would you stop and turn the car off? Or would you keep, you turn around and try to figure out how to get back? You don't allow that to stop the journey. And that's so true. You know, because sometimes we allow ourselves to get stuck and it's okay to ponder and to think, but the end is you got to get to where you got to go. It's you know? so interesting because just to piggyback on that analogy, you know, even in the car analogy, even when we're lost, we pull over and we, 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 we gather, you know, our surroundings and before GPS, we're talking clearly before GPS. Yeah. <laughs> we, pull out, we pull out the roadmap in the glove compartment, but we don't the turn the car the gasoline station. <laughs> Right. Well, you know, but you thought before GPS and before cell phones, because yes. you know, I remember, I remember, you know, my mother getting lost going somewhere and we had to stop by the payphone at the gasoline station to figure out where we're going. That's right. 
That's right. You know, these are wonderful analogies because we're constantly trying to get to the destination. We're trying yes. to get to the destination. We won't. We won't stop. Yeah. What a great analogy! Great analogy. Thank Thanks so much for spending time with us. Come back next week for part two. This is Denise Wood saying, "You want more? Find us on whatever podcast platform you use. Subscribe and leave us a review. Thanks a lot. See you next time."